they were behind one to nothing last I, I saw. Um, I hope it's better luck than the Indians tie a war. Indians lost a tough game uh, last night and the Reds lo lost a tough game on the noon, the noon game. Um, so we'll see. Um, I wanna to begin today talking um, for a moment uh, about the presidential debate that occurred on Tuesday night. I wanna congratulate the Cleveland Clinic, Case Western Reserve University, uh, Mayor Jackson, the city of Cleveland and the police department. Uh, they all did a, a great, great job. We're very, very proud of the job that they did. So Ohioans, we were certainly very proud to host this debate. However, uh, the debate itself was certainly not our country's finest hour or not our country's finest 90 minutes. Uh, I hope that the next debate will focus on the future, on the vital issues, vital issues on the decisions that the next president of the United States will have to make on the substantive issues that this country faces. This is a very important election. Um, as you know, I support President Trump. His choices for federal district and circuit court judges have been exemplary. His choices for Supreme Court have as well been excellent. His most recent nomination of Judge Barrett is also excellent. I could not be happier with a nomination. I believe his tough stance in trade negotiations will continue in the future to expand job growth in Ohio and in this country. I've known Joe Biden for many years, having served in the United States Senate with him. While many times we may have disagreed on policy issues, I know that he too, he too wants what is best for this country of ours. The name calling by both candidates is simply not helpful. The name calling by both candidates is not productive. Now, each of us saw this debate through our own eyes, our own lens, through the prism of our own beliefs and the candidate that we support. However, I do believe that there can be agreement on what we as Americans have a right to see in the next debate. What is needed, what is needed in the next debate is a robust, energetic debate on the challenges that the next president will face. And as in presidential debates of the past, each candidate has an obligation to articulate a vision for the future of this country, to articulate what kind of a country that candidate believes we should be leaving to our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. As I've done in the past at several of these press conferences, uh, I want to talk about hate in America. Uh, and this is something that 
deeply concerns me. There are fringe groups and individuals in this country of both the right and the left who simply do not share our common values, who do not share the great values of this country. There are haters. There are people who hate Jews, Muslims, African-Americans, and we could go on and on. There is no place in America, no place in this great country for that. There are also people, there are people who believe that violence is the way to achieve political ends. That is not right. And I want to again speak out against that. White supremacists know only hate, anti-Semites know only hate, and we could go on and on. It sickens me that there are people in our country who perpetrate this hate, violence, and the work to divide us. We cannot let this, these fringe groups, either right or left, divide us. We cannot let them into that system when they preach violence, when they preach hate. As I said at the end of May, following the death of George Floyd, we have a responsibility to each other. We have a responsibility to our country. In all aspects of our lives, we simply must not allow hate to prevail over love, over kindness, over compassion, especially in these times of uncertainty, fear, division. Because to paraphrase the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, hate is too great a burden for this country. I want to talk now again about the sanctity of the Ohio election process. We have a long, long history in this state of running fair, transparent elections. Because of laws passed by the General Assembly, work done by Republican and Democrat secretaries of the state in the past and the current Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, and because of Democrats and Republicans working together at the county level and at the precinct level. They have worked together successfully for decades. And because of this history, and because of what we have done in the past and what we're going to continue to do, Ohioans can be assured of a fair, orderly election this November. As our history proves, our election process in Ohio is orderly. It is transparent. It's bipartisan. As Ohioans can and should expect, the will of the people in November will be respected. In Ohio and in this country, elections are sacred. There is a sanctity to our election process. 
we give them proper respect. There's a reason. The flags outside, the polling places are there not only to signal where that precinct is or where that voting place is, but they also say to the approaching voter, this is truly a special place. Inside these flags, inside these flags, you and your vote are safe. Campaigning ceases inside this space so that voting can go on unfettered, so that people can feel safe and confident and heard. My commitment to every Ohio voter is this. We will not tolerate any interference in this sacred process. We will, as we have done in the past, protect each citizen's right to vote and to have their vote counted. The system, this bipartisan system, has worked in the past. It will work again. Talked to Frank LaRose today. He wanted me to remind you of several things. The last day to register to vote is this coming Monday. If you are not registered, uh, you can do it at your Board of Elections or you can register online at voteohio.gov. If you are not registered or if you aren't sure about it, that um, go ahead and contact the Board of Elections. You can go online. Further, for over a decade now, Ohioans have enjoyed a menu of options for casting their ballot. If you'd like to vote on Election Day, November 3rd, that option is protected and open to you. The polls will be open from 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. at night. You can find your polling place at voteohio.gov. If you want to vote in person but worry you won't have time on Election Day, your County Board of Elections will begin opening their early Vote Center this coming Tuesday, October 6th. You can see the hours and locations also at voteohio.gov. If you prefer to cast your ballot in the privacy of your own home, Secretary LaRose has mailed an absentee ballot request form to all registered voters. Fill it out, mail it in today. If you misplaced that application or accidentally threw it away, you can download a new form again at voteohio.gov. Finally, I want to address what happens after the election. One of the things we've done well throughout our history is the transfer of power after an election. Sometimes incumbent presidents reelected, sometimes it might be an open seat, sometimes it's a situation where the incumbent loses, but whatever the situation, whatever the situation, since the beginning of this country, however hotly contested these races have been, however riled up people get, however partisan it gets, however emotional people get, when the results are in, when they are in, people will accept it. Might not like it, but we're Americans. We accept it. As an author, uh, Theodore White uh, wrote in a book about another presidential election a number of years ago, we as Americans understand the transfer of power. We get it. We do it right. Talking about election day and ultimately 
this transfer of power. If you just bear with me for a moment, I'm going to quote <clears throat> what White wrote, talking about the campaign and campaign ending. All of this is in, in talking about Election Day. All of this is invisible, for it is the essence of the act that as it happens, it is a mystery in which millions of people each fit one fragment of a total secret together, none of them knowing the shape of the whole. What results from the fitting together of these secrets is, of course, the most awesome transfer of power in the world, the power to marshal and mobilize, the power to send men to kill or be killed, the power to tax and destroy, the power to create and the responsibility to do so, the power to guide and the responsibility to heal, all committed into the hands of one individual. Heroes and philosophers, brave men and vile, have since Rome and Athens tried to make this particular manner of transfer of power work effectively. No people, no people has succeeded at it better for over a longer period of time than the Americans. As the transfer of this power takes place, there's nothing to be seen except an occasional line outside church or school or file of people fidgeting in the rain, waiting to enter the booths. No bands play on election day, no troops march, no guns are ready, no conspirators gather in secret headquarters. The noise and the blare, the bands and the screaming, the pageantry, the oratory, the long fall campaign fade on election day. All the planning is over, all effort spent. Now the candidate simply must wait. That's what we do. We are Americans. We do it very, very well. And we will do it this year as well. Let me go now to uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, for a few comments. Thank you, Governor. Um, I'm going to start today by talking about workforce issues, uh, jobs, and the, what we consider the foundation of a prosperous economy. Uh, we're going to talk about tech cred starting off. Uh, the August round was record setting with more than 1,227 uh, credentials, uh, more than the June round. Uh, for reference, we had 3,241 credentials in June. We had 4,468 credentials awarded in August. Uh, today, we are announcing that 288 Ohio companies have been approved for more than $3.4 million in this round uh, to earn those 4,468 credentials. Uh, these are, remember, industry-recognized tech credentials. And after five rounds of funding, we now have 983 Ohio employers that have been approved for 11,941 tech-focused credentials. Uh, I make this announcement with uh, a bit of uh, satisfaction because as you recall, Governor, we promised that we were gonna try to do at least 10,000 of these uh, in the first year. Uh, and we're exceeding that mark with, over, with nearly 12,000. Uh, and uh, we 
we believe that these micro degrees, these tech credentials, these industry credentials uh, are the foundation uh, of a growing vibrant uh, economy. Uh, more and more employers are turning to these industry recognized credentials as um, evidence that you can do the job. And in this case, they are upskilling their existing workforce, helping those individuals not only contribute to the success of the company, but also to their own success by uh, helping them potentially earn more, helping them become uh, more job secure. Uh, we are announcing today our next round, which opens up today, October 1st, hard to believe it's October 1st already, um, and that will close on October the 30th. Anybody who's interested in more information, go to techcred.ohio.gov uh, to find out how you as an employer can get funding to upskill your workforce uh, and how individuals can get these tech-based credentials. Uh, now I'm going to turn to uh, Dr. Abby Norris-Turner from The Ohio State University. Uh, as uh, many of you know, we work with the Ohio Department of Health to perform an antibody study, or Abby did, uh, and the, her team to learn more about the rate of the virus spreading and to create a benchmark for positive results so we can know more accurately how to track the spread in coming months. Uh, really, we're trying to find out maybe how many people have had the virus, how many people have the virus, what we can learn for that. Uh, I uh, am, it's great that uh, Dr. Abby Norris-Turner uh, is able to join us today to talk. Uh, Dr. Turner, Norris-Turner is an infectious disease epidemiologist. She has decades of experience in this area and has shifted her focus this year to understanding the epidemiology of COVID-19 in our state. Uh, she has been a great resource to the governor and me and our entire team throughout. And I wanna thank uh, Dr. Norris Turner for joining us. And, and uh, if you could, doctor, please let us know how the study was conducted and what you found. Yes, I'm happy to do that. Um, and it's really a pleasure to be able to be with you here today. Um, so I want to start out, of course, by also thanking the colleagues who helped to make this work happen. So both folks I worked with at Ohio State, but also an incredible group at the Ohio Department of Health. Also our partners with um, our partnerships with local health departments and local health districts who let us work out of their buildings um, during 20 hot days in July and more than 100 study staff members who helped us to collect data and supported the teams in the field with logistics and other, and other tasks. Um, and most importantly, the participants. So folks across the state of Ohio who agreed to join this project and help us answer this question. Uh, so to jump right into it, um, the purpose of this project that we carried out um, was to create or to calculate two specific estimates. Um, the first was the estimate of active COVID-19. So how many people have COVID-19 um, at that moment in time. And the second was to estimate the prevalence of people who had had COVID-19 in the past. Uh, and the way that we did that was to select 240 census tracts that are geographically representative across the state. Uh, and then within those 240 census tracts, we randomly sampled households. Um, once we had that, that list of households, we sent folks first a postcard and then a letter which explained what would happen with the research study and also gave them instructions for how they could opt out of participation if they knew ahead of time they didn't want to join the study. 
um, from people that we did not hear from ahead of time. We visited them at their home and we explained the study in person if someone was home. And if someone was not home, we left information about the study um, at the home and asked them to call us, in which case we would, or, or text us or email us, in which case we'd come back. Uh, for people who are interested in proceeding, we went through the process of informed consent, so they understood what was involved with the project. Um, and those who consented then went on to give biological samples, which is what we, we then tested to be able to come up with our estimates of infection. Um, so a trained nurse from the Ohio Department of Health first collected a blood sample, which we tested for antibodies against COVID-19, um, and then a nasopharyngeal swab sample, which is what we tested to look for active disease. And these results at the end of the study are combined statistically. So the households going into the census tract and the census tract uh, representing the state to come up with these estimates that would be a statewide estimate of prevalence. So over these 20 days in July, from July 9th to July 28th, um, 727 Ohio adults participated in the research. And once the laboratory um, assays were done, we combined those findings using a Bayesian statistical approach to generate these estimates. And so for active disease, we found that 0.9% of the sample, so that's just under 1% of the sample, had active COVID-19 during that time. Um, and the confidence interval around that 0.9% goes from 0.1% to 2.0%. Um, and following a similar process, looking at the antibody findings, we found that 1.5% of people in the study had evidence of antibodies to COVID-19. Um, and the confidence interval around that goes from 0.3 to 2.9%. And just a note of a, a sort of reminder to folks thinking about those antibody results. We now understand that the assays that uh, are conventionally used to measure antibodies to COVID-19, they are only provide a look back window of about three months. So that those antibody numbers don't tell us who's been infected since the beginning of the pandemic in Ohio. Um, for a study done in July, it's really only a maximum look back to about the middle of April. Um, we don't have a lot of data to compare our findings to, but what we do have suggests that what we found is right along with expectations. So um, those numbers are similar, for example, to what the Ohio Red Cross is reporting among antibody prevalence for antibody prevalence among blood donors. Uh, and just this week, CDC released findings from a large seroprevalence study that they're doing across the whole country, including in Ohio, and our results are also similar to what they found. Well, great. Um, I know that uh, that a lot of people have been, you know, awaiting this to find out because somebody always wants to ask the question: How many people in Ohio have had the virus? I know that that this study, you know, can't definitively tell us this. You know, what um, if you look out and try to do your best uh, to extrapolate out how many people can we estimate in Ohio may have had the virus already or currently do? Yeah, such an important question and of course critical for understanding kind of what's coming next, right? We always want to look back at what's happened so far. Um, so um, one of the important answers to this question is that these data from this study can't give us a precise number. Um, what we can say more generally and with confidence is that the prevalence of COVID-19 among adults in Ohio, this study only, only tested in adults, but the prevalence in adults in Ohio is relatively low, um, has remained relatively low. Uh, the flip side of that coin, of course, is that that means many more people are still susceptible to infection. 
so just to convert some of our prevalence numbers uh, estimates into real numbers, um, I told you that 0.9% of the sample had active disease during, during this period of July. And if you look at the population of Ohio adults, that corresponds to about 80,000 Ohio adults who would have had COVID during these 20 days in July. Um, similarly, if you look for that at that 1.5% antibody prevalence, that corresponds to about 100 Ohio adults who had evidence of past infection. But we can't really extend those numbers to other time periods because whether people were exposed depends on the prevalence at other time periods in that in and um, and basically what was the circulation of the virus in their communities at those other time periods. So it's hard, it's hard to take what we learned from July and make a broader argument than just that period of time. Um, again, though, even in place of exact estimates, what we can say with confidence is that some hundreds of thousands of Ohioans have had COVID and millions of Ohioans remain susceptible to COVID. So the same public health efforts which have worked to keep the prevalence of disease low are still needed to prevent ongoing and forward transmission. Another question I know that I, I always get a lot of people who are curious because the antibodies stay in our system somewhere. I think I heard, heard you say, maybe you didn't say it in this, but on another time, you know, about 50% of them, 50% of the sample keeps antibodies antibodies for two months. Um, some of the, the other 50% may be for three months, but very few people carry antibodies beyond three months that are detectable. But that doesn't mean that they that after three months that uh, they still don't have some type of immunity that we would expect. So to give us a, a feel for what that means in terms of antibodies and immunity to the virus once you've had it. Yes, I'm happy to tell you what what's the state of the science at this moment with immunity. Um, and with the huge caution that this, like so many things with COVID, this is changing all of the time as we have um, new information from around the world, really. So, so what you said is, is true, which is um, most people will no longer have detectable antibodies, um, at least from what is measured in these conventional assays for longer than, than three months. Um, and what that means after that three month period for their immunity is really still an open question. Um, it may be that there are other elements of their immune system that are still active, but we're not measuring that. And so we don't know if that's providing some kind of protection. Um, similarly, what we tend to do is measure the level of antibodies in people's blood, but maybe what we should be measuring instead is the activity of those antibodies. How, how good is that person's antibodies at neutralizing the virus when exposed, for example? And maybe that's more meaningful for understanding their immunity. Um, so to answer your specific question, um, maybe there's some short-term protection um, and epidemiologically, we, we don't see a lot of reinfection occurring in that three-month window. So, so maybe there's some short-term um, protection against, against reinfection. Um, we are starting to see reinfections in the scientific literature now, although they tend to happen a little bit longer after the initial infection. And what's really unclear right now is whether those are going to be general trends that that the population at large will be susceptible longer uh, or after some time, or whether there's something special about those people. Maybe they they didn't mount an, a full immune response at the time, um, and so they remain susceptible. So so I guess the conclusion to this is that COVID-19 continues to surprise us, um, and so we shouldn't make any 
optimistic or pessimistic uh, predictions about short or long-term immunity to disease. Um, but those surprises keep giving us opportunities to work with stakeholders really across the state and around the world to answer those questions. Great. Well, thanks for doing the study for us and for joining us today. I know that uh, more information about the study will be available on our coronavirus website uh, under the dashboard overview. Uh, we really appreciate uh, what you did to help us have a little better perspective on this. Um, I, I guess I, probably one more question. Ohio fits in, in compared to how and some of the studies have gone on in the other states. Are we pretty comparable? Uh, in the very local region of the Midwest where we are, we are among the lowest. So um, I believe West Virginia and at the time that the, the study was done, Wisconsin were slightly lower than Ohio. Um, we're quite similar to Indiana and um, we're lower, of course, than Pennsylvania and, um, uh, you know, much lower than, than New York. Um, so, yeah. Well, great. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. A couple of uh, final issues we like to highlight. We like to highlight businesses who are stepping up uh, to try to help uh, us work through the virus response and to uh, help the citizens of the state of Ohio uh, learn to live with the virus in their lives and get through it uh, 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 as well as we can. Uh, today, um, I want to highlight uh, an announcement that's being made by the foundation for Appalachian, Ohio. Uh, we, Governor and I often talk about the need for internet connectivity for our students, for healthcare, for the economy. And um, today the foundations, I'm a child of Appalachia Fund, uh, has partnered with Facebook and T-Mobile to provide hotspots to libraries in Southeast Ohio that will be made available to be checked out like other library resources. Facebook is providing these mobile hotspots at no cost to the libraries, uh, along with six months of unlimited data usage on the T-Mobile network. And then T-Mobile is kicking in an additional six months so these hotspots will be available for a full year of unlimited data for use by li library patrons, as well as helping those hotspots already in use. Uh, the Foundation for Appalachia, Ohio, Appalachian Ohio is one of the many organizations to help us fill this important role. If you'd like to find out more about the effort, you can go to AppalachianOhio.org. Uh, this initiative is very complimentary to something the governor and I uh, announced where we put $50 million of CARES Act funding, made that available for, for schools. This will help communities and families as well. Um, this uh, pilot uh, will be, or this uh, program will be available at a minimum in Athens, Harrison, Highland, Jackson, Lawrence, Meigs, Pike, Vinton, and Vinton counties. And there's an endeavor to get out a total of 240 hotspots to the libraries uh, in, these, in these communities to help extend uh, broadband high-speed internet, <clears throat> I should say high-speed internet service uh, to the people in these communities. So thanks to uh, the foundation and Facebook and T-Mobile for stepping up to help people in this time of need. And then finally, uh, a, a quick update. Uh, last year, uh, I went to uh, London uh, to work uh, with Jobs Ohio on the London Stock Exchange Group, <laughs> moving its America's headquarters to Cleveland. 
due to COVID that has been postponed. Uh, the physical location of the headquarters until 2021, but that doesn't mean that the <clears throat> virtual, uh, the virtual uh, efforts are not underway. Uh, they absolutely are, uh, and I'm glad to announce today the financial support, and thanks to the financial support of the Greater Cleveland Partnership, Fifth Third Bank, and Jobs Ohio, that uh, over 10 companies will be uh, beginning uh, to participate in the Elite's International Private Company Development Platform. The Cleveland cohort will start on October the 12th. Why is this important? Because the companies that participate in this historically uh, have experienced seven times the growth, created four times more jobs than their industry peers. Uh, we want to jumpstart uh, these activities, uh, these businesses in Ohio to, to take them from small businesses to medium businesses, medium-sized businesses, maybe someday even a larger business uh, by helping them understand how they can grow and connect to the rest of the world. And so we appreciate that uh, the Global Elite Program uh, and, and uh, the partnership, the, the Cleveland uh, Growth Partnership and, um, uh, and Fifth Third Bank along with Jobs Ohio are, are helping to promote this and get this started. And Governor, if, if just a, one thing I'd like to say in, in uh, support of your earlier comments, uh, thank you for what you said about America and our democracy and our elections. Uh, our elections in Ohio are tried, true, and, te true and tested. Uh, and I wanna remind folks, I had the privilege of serving Ohio as Ohio Secretary of State for eight years and as its chief elections official. And remember, elections in Ohio are run by your neighbors. Uh, the 88 county boards of elections, they are made up of Democrats and Republicans that live in your community. The local polling locations are, are, are operated by men and women who are your friends and neighbors. Uh, and if you have concerns, if you have questions about whether the elections process is going to run well, be part of it. You can be a poll worker. The elections, the people who run elections in Ohio are the people of Ohio. You can be one of them. So go to voteohio.gov and sign up to be a poll worker. Uh, because our election system in Ohio is a great one uh, because it's run by the people of our state. It's, it's something that you can count on. Please participate uh, as a poll worker. Uh, it will give you insights and probably help you build confidence in the system we have in our state. Governor, thank you very much and back to you. Lieutenant Governor, thank you very much. Um, we're gonna try to get as much time for questions today. Uh, but I do want to go uh, through this pretty quickly. This is Thursday, so this is the day we put new data out. So uh, let's go to our daily uh, slide, which is up here. What you will see here, um, you know, we were tracking down, um, and for a while we had an average below uh, 1,000 cases a day. Uh, now we're above that, and as you can see uh, for yesterday, the most recent data, it's 1,327 cases. So going, going, starting to go back up, it looks like, in regard to that. I'd also mention uh, the positivity number, uh, which we talk a lot about, and you'll see that in a minute in some other states where we're advising you to be careful if you go there. Uh, our positivity uh, for the last month or so has been coming down. Um, and it got below a little bit below 3%, 3%. In fact, I think it was down at one point to 2.6. Uh, we're now 
starting to see it go back up. And so we don't know whether that's a, a long-term trend. Our most recent day was 4%. Uh, we're averaging a little bit over 3%. Um, so we're, we're watching that. We don't know whether that's a long-term trend or not. We certainly hope it is not, but we're seeing the cases go up and we're starting to see the positivity inch back up. And we hope it's not a, a long trend. Um, Eric, let's look at the uh, uh, case hospitalization and death table. Uh, we won't go through this. This is posted. You can take a look at it, but if you want to look at your county, what you can do is you can look and see the number of, of cases. Uh, we have this uh, in September. So uh, as September ends, uh, you can look back and see cases, how many cases your county had, new cases your county had in the month of September. Um, how many people went to the hospital, were hospitalized during that period of time. And then you also see the number of deaths that are reported uh, during that period of time. These are lagging indicators um, and they, they lag behind. And as I've said before, the deaths are reported when we get them, uh, not necessarily when that death, death actually, actually occurred. Uh, Eric, let's go to the travel advisory map. Uh, these are the county, excuse me, these are the states. Um, we'll see how good everybody's uh, uh, map uh, map uh, judgment is here, but these are the states that have over 15% seven-day moving average. Um, highlight states are ones that are currently reporting a positivity of 15% or more. So again, if you're traveling to those states, obviously, um, and coming back, be careful. If you're traveling there, staying for a while, be careful uh, as well. Um, let's look now at our next slide. Eric, this is... Um, Top 20 counties ranked by highest occurrence. Uh, <clears throat> again, there's really two different ways we're looking at this. One is, is the color code, uh, seven different indicators. Some of these are leading indicators, kind of showing you the trends where things are going. Um, then there's this, and this is uh, something we started a month or so ago to show you which counties have the highest number of cases per 100,000 population. So we can compare apples to apples over the last two weeks, so that's a that's a that would normally is normally is a is a two week rank, and that's what you're seeing. That's what you're seeing here. And again, you can you can take a look at those on online. Uh, let's move now to our uh, color code maps, Eric, and let's see what our changes we might have here. Um, this is our alert map. Again, we use the term alert because it kind of gives people an indication of, of some of the early indicators as well as what's going on now. Uh, we're seeing more red counties uh, this week. Again, that's not good. Uh, we have 11 red counties, more than we've seen at any point uh, in September. Although many Ohioans are certainly working hard to keep this virus in check, unfortunately, we're seeing a rebound in some areas of the state. Uh, Southwest Ohio, we're seeing a couple more counties go back to red. Uh, we saw an increase in cases among college students in late August and September. Uh, thankfully, these cases were mostly in young and healthy people. Uh, our concern, of course, always is that they spread that to, to others. Uh, and we don't know, frankly, if the uptick that we're seeing in these counties uh, is due to spread from these college students or not. We, we really, our data team cannot that at this at this point. 
Uh, our colleges are doing a good job. Uh, they're, they're fighting back. Uh, they've worked hard to keep these cases under control. Um, let me talk about the four new red county. Four new red counties are Claremont, Hamilton, Muskingum, and Richland. Um, and let me just go through quickly a few of the, all of the, the counties. Uh, Mercer County continues uh, as red this week. Um, they met the CDC's threshold for high incidence. Mercer County's cases per capita have increased from 206 uh, on September 8th to 260 this week. That's 20% increase. Um, local health department officials said they had 24 new cases in the 24 hours between Tuesday and Wednesday. In addition to sustained community spread, the county has had two small long-term uh, care facility outbreaks and officials are also seeing scattered cases within the school district. Putnam County uh, continues red this week. The county meets the CDC's threshold for high incidence. Local health department officials attribute the continued community spread to transmission within families and between groups of friends and families getting together. They also said they're having uh, concerns with people following appropriate quarantine and isolation instructions. Um, Pike County, they continue red this week. The county meets the CDC's threshold for high incidence. And during the past two weeks, the county has had 47 cases. That represents about a fourth of their total cases since the beginning of the pandemic. The county has had at least 22 cases linked to a large event. Uh, the event was in a neighboring county, but Pike County residents attended the county also has, has spread from family and friends just getting together, household transmissions and community spread. Uh, Butler County uh, continues as red this week. The county meets the CDC's threshold for high incidence. Butler County's health department said Miami University cases have stayed steady, about 20 to 25 new cases per day. Schools have been doing very well, although uh, there have been some K through 12, been doing very well. There's been some spread associated with sports teams. Many of the county schools will be transitioning to in-person in October. Residents continue to have large gatherings, uh, which is causing a lot of this problem. No mask wearing and no social distancing is what our local uh, officials tell us in Butler County. Let's move to Muskingum. Uh, they return, unfortunately, to red this week. The county was last red on August 13th, only stayed red for that week. The county has had 105 cases during the past two weeks, which is a fourth, excuse me, a fifth of their total cases during the pandemic. Local health department officials reported this week that they have 42 cases, 42 cases linked to an outbreak that spans across the Eagles, the Moose Lodges, the VFW, and the American Legion. Uh, there have been nine hospitalizations with two people in the ICU and one death associated with the outbreak. Local health department officials asked the clubs to close to slow the spread and all four complied. Uh, as of this morning, the county had 90 active cases and 333 people in active quarantine. Hospitalizations have also increased. Montgomery County uh, has been red now for more than a month. The county meets the CDC's threshold for high incidence. Uh, University of Dayton is reporting fewer cases. The school dashboard reported, reported 25 cases on Tuesday and nine cases on Wednesday. The school transitioned to remote learning for two weeks and returned to in-person classes on September 24th. Montgomery County officials are also reporting some cases in school districts, and the county also has a large nursing home outbreak. Let's move to Scioto County. Scioto County continues uh, as red this week. 
There has been a sustained increase in new cases growing from an average of four and a half cases per day average uh, from September 18th to almost eight average cases per day on September 25th. Outpatient visits for COVID-like illnesses are also increasing from an average of 13 visits per day on September 19th to 21 average visits per day on September 26th. Uh, local health department officials report cases associated with sports teams, social gatherings, and community spread. Hamilton County. Unfortunately, Hamilton County returns red this week. The last time the county was red was July 30th. During the past two weeks, the county has had 737 new cases, an average of about 50 new cases per day, and close to where the county has been most recently. According to local university dashboards, cases at the universities total about 200 during the past two weeks. However, it's important to note that the university cases are on the decline, good news, and there is a shift towards a greater percentage of cases in older uh, adults. The county has also uh, a recent sustained increase in outpatient visits. Let's turn to Richland County. They meet six of seven indicators this week, and they are on our watch list. <clears throat> the county has more than doubled their increase in new cases, growing from four average new cases per day on September 19th to nine average new cases per day on September 25th. County added 95 new cases during the past two weeks. These case numbers exclude, exclude incarcerated individuals. So we're not counting that. The county also has sustained increases in healthcare utilization, including outpatient and emergency department visits and hospital admissions. Local health department officials report community spread and outbreaks at correctional centers and a long-term care facility. They also report that families continue to plan events um, and that is part of big events and that's part of the, what the problem that they're seeing. Ashland County. Uh, Ashland County continues red this week. The county meets four indicators and is seeing a sustained increase in new cases. Local health department officials report that there is a large outbreak in a long-term care facility and an outbreak at Ashland University. There are also outbreaks associated in an event center where a wedding was held, a workplace, and social gatherings. Health department officials report they are seeing more community spread of the virus. Unfortunately, there is resistance to mask wearing and social distancing in the county. Let's go uh, back to Southwest Ohio. Claremont County returns red this week. The county was last red on August 20th. The county has added 129 new cases during the past 14 days. The county is seeing an increase in healthcare utilization, including an outpatient and emergency department visits. Local health department officials in Claremont County reporting outbreaks at a long-term care facility and a small workplace outbreak. Um, although the county did have some cases associated with sports teams, overall schools are doing well with compliance and case management. Schools also have been cautious about sponsoring events and many have canceled or changed their homecoming plans. Uh, however, the health department uh, told us they have concern about parents that are holding alternative uh, events. Uh, let me talk for a moment um, about a couple of stories we've heard this week from local health officials. Uh, again, we tell these just as, as a warning, really. Uh, first example involves a couple, the husband who was in his 80s, passed away of a non-COVID-related cause. His funeral is in a neighboring state. His 85-year-old widow attended. The funeral director in the neighboring state did not wear a mask and passed COVID to the widow who subsequently became ill and died. Another example, a man was in ICU for a non-COVID related reason. The hospital tested him initially and he was negative. 
His wife continued to come visit him, but refused to wear a mask despite the best efforts of hospital staff to encourage her to do so. She started feeling ill after a few days and tested positive. Now her husband also is a COVID, is COVID positive. Um, these are just several examples. Again, uh, just, just sad, sad cases. We only share them just to show how easily that this can be uh, transmitted. Uh, I am gonna stop. We were gonna hear from Alicia Nelson, uh, who's our Recovery Ohio director. Uh, she will join us next week because we're out of time. Uh, but she will talk about uh, the problem of drugs um, and how we are trying to deal with that. Uh, we've talked about that in the past, but we're, we continue to see uh, the drug problem. Uh, one of the uh, sad outcomes or sad things we're seeing from COVID is we've seen an increase in, in drug use uh, in Ohio. Uh, we'll now go for our questions. Governor, your first question today is from Scott Hallis at the Xenia Daily Gazette. Hey, Scott. Hey, Governor, how are you? Good. Good. This may be the worst time to ask this question, given the, what you said about some of the cases uh, being on the rise and the positivity coming up. But we've got high school playoffs starting up. They just announced the uh, football brackets today. They're actually being loaded as we speak. Is there any talk of maybe increasing the amount of fans are, that are going to be allowed? especially as we get deeper in the tournament and they tend to use bigger stadiums? Well, our goals, Scott, remain the same, and that is that parents have the opportunity to go see their kids play, family members. Uh, so if anything is done and we're open to, to talk uh, from to the school officials, we granted, for example, um, the local health departments and the state dozens of variances uh, throughout this year in regard to, to their schools in order to allow parents to attend. And that's our goal. So as we look at playoffs, that will remain our goal. And, um, uh, you know, as we look at you know, every sport's different, cross country is a lot different than football. You know, we're open to try to accommodate so that the athletes can run, play football, whatever the sport is. Um, and at the same time, the parents can come and see them play. Their loved ones can see them play. So that will be our kind of our, our, our North Star as we as we look at that. Next question is from John London at WLWT in Cincinnati. Hey, John. Hi, hi Governor. Uh, Hamilton County and Claremont County uh, going red and Butler County staying red. You know, that's a big section of Southwest Ohio. And I'm wondering what you envision for the early fall now going into Thanksgiving uh, and what actions you might consider uh, should the numbers go higher for schools, sports, and daily activity. Well, John, that's a, it's a good question. Um, we monitor this every single day. Uh, we're on the phone with local health departments frequently. We're talking to school superintendents. Um, I get emails from different superintendents. Um, you know, in, in regard to our schools, uh, I think our schools are doing a very good job. Uh, they're on this. They're doing the best job that they can. Uh, what we're seeing is, you know, our concern was that when we saw outbreak with kids, that that would lead to outbreak with older Ohioans. We are seeing that. What we don't know is if there's a cause and effect. We're seeing more from older Ohioans. You know, for a month or so, it's been 
you know, a big percentage is under, under the age of 30. Now we're seeing these numbers go, go back up with an older population. And, and so uh, the, the, the simplest thing to do um, is to be able to curtail uh, these events. I mean, I, I, I read examples. If we could get 80%, 85% of the people in this state in every county to wear a mask when they're out in public and to avoid these big events, we'd have this thing under control. I mean, it'd still be here, uh, but we would have it under control. And so I know everybody's tired. I'm sick of it. You're sick of it. We're all sick of it. Uh, but we got to hang in here. Uh, you know, I get the question a lot. When, Mike, when's this over? When can I take my mask off? When can I go about life as normal? And I don't have a great answer, but the best answer I can come up with is when we can, that will happen when we get herd immunity. And as you heard from the discussion uh, that John Houston had in the study that he presented today, we're not going to get that without the vaccine. I mean, we're not going to work our way into this for years. So what we have to do is hang in there. We got to keep this virus low. We got to keep our foot on its, on its neck um, and wait. And we wait for the vaccine to hit. And when it gets here and the first people start getting the shots, we got to encourage everybody to get one that can. And it's going to come layered. It's going to start with, with our most vulnerable people in our nursing homes and others. It's going to talk, start with our first responders. And it's going to take a while to get this out. But the, the point that we get this way, way out, so we've got a significant segment of the population, and I don't know what that segment is, but a significant segment, you know, that have that, that immunity, if, these, if this does in fact work the way we hope it will, then that's when we see the end of this. Um, I mean, look, we're tough, we're Ohioans, we've been at this seven months or so, uh, and it's, it's not easy, but we just gotta keep going uh, or we're gonna have these outbreaks. And when we hit the outbreaks, I know this has been tough on business. I know it's been tough on bars. I know it's been tough on restaurants. I know it's been tough on a lot of small businesses. And I know it's been tough on people losing their jobs. Um, and if we're going to have any chance of, of, of continuing to grow the economy, then we got to keep our foot on this, on this uh, devil down there. And it can only be by people wearing masks. So the things to do, John, differently, there aren't different things to do. It's we just got to do what we know we got to do. <laughs> And uh, if we get those numbers back, I mean, I was, look, I was on the phone this week with a number of health directors who, who said, look, our mask compliance was going up. It was great. Now it's starting to go down again. And I get it. People are, are wore out, but, but we're, we're Ohioans. We can't get wore out. We got we to gotta hang in there. And by hanging in there and doing the things that we need to do, our kids can play sports. Our kids can go to school. We can keep our businesses open. But it's only if we do these other things like wearing the mask and keep, and keep a distance. That's where we are. Next question is from Laura Hancock at cleveland.com. Hi, Laura. We'll come back to Laura. Next question is from Alex Ebert at Bloomberg. Good afternoon, Governor. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Larry Abhoff is, is expected to introduce a bill called a trigger ban, which would eliminate the right to have an abortion in Ohio 
if Roe v. Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court. Do you support a trigger ban for the state of Ohio? I, I have not looked at it. It's literally the first thing uh, I have heard about it. Uh, as I think as you could tell by my comments about President Trump's appointments to the court, um, you know, like strict constructionist, uh, people believe in the Constitution, um, and I think everybody knows I'm pro-life. Uh, but I've not looked at this. Uh, I've, literally, this is the first I've, I, I've heard of this. Don't know what it does. So. We'll go back to Laura Hancock at cleveland.com. Good afternoon, Governor. Um, the legislature has not acted to repeal House Bill 6 yet. Um, Attorney General Dave Yost has called on the utilities to prove they need the money. Um, Ohioans are going to start paying these fees and our utility bills soon. As governor, do you have any duty to them to make sure that House Bill 6 doesn't come to fruition? Well, I think the attorney general is right that we need to know this. Uh, one of the issues that has been debated and kicked around is whether or not, you know, the legislature, when it passed the original bill, had enough information about what the need was to keep the uh, nuclear plant open. Uh, and so I'm always for transparency. And I've not talked to the attorney general about this or talked about the process of who should do it. But I think he's, from what I read in the paper at least, I think he's right that transparency is always good and more information about, you know, what their actual financial situation is would be helpful. And, and this I, is, again, again, I, I would like to see the repeal, as I've said, as I've said, this needs to be repealed because the process was so flawed that it has, it, it has cast a, a, a light on this uh, bill that it can never recover from. I mean, we've got to repeal it and, 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 figure, and figure out where we're going from there. But that's, that's been my position and remains my position. Next question is from Jim Province at the Toledo Blade. Hey, Jim. Hello, Governor. Um, I think this question is probably for the Lieutenant Governor or for Abby. Um, now that we have this information from the prevalence study, is there some practice we put that to? I'm curious as to whether there is something or a decision we can make. Jim, we're losing you, unfortunately, at least I am. I don't know whether the Lieutenant Governor can hear you or not, but. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't hear the question. Well, yeah. Jim, can you try it again? Uh, I think we've lost Jim. We'll uh, bring him back up when he reconnects. Okay. Next question is from Marty Schladen at the Ohio Capitol Journal. Good afternoon, Governor. Afternoon, Marty. Um, last week, when I asked you about the president's refusal to say that he would promise to abide by uh, the outcome of the election, you responded by saying you didn't know what was in his heart. But of course, I wasn't asking about what was in his heart. I was asking about what he said and what he's not said. And again, before tens of millions of people during the debate, he refused to say that he would abide by the results of an election in which he's behind in the polls. And you know, I want to be clear about what's at stake here. Uh, hundreds of uh, Americans have died on hundreds of battlefields protecting the principle that in a democracy, leaders yield power to the will of the voters. So respectfully, I'd like to ask you again, do you contend, 
condemn Trump's refusal to say he'll respect the will of the voters. Marty, I think I addressed this, you know, in my opening statement. Whoever loses, once it's determined that they've lost, they lose. And, you know, we, we can go back in the most hard-fought campaigns in anyone's memory. Um, and as I said the other day, my dog is jumping up here. Um, as we said the other day, um, first election I really remember is, is Nixon and Kennedy and people won Nixon, you know, uh, won Nixon to contest it. Hey, they stole the election from you in Chicago. They did this and that. And, you know, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Uh, Gore Bush, nothing could be more highly contested, went all the way to the Supreme Court, went into December. Uh, but when the, when it was finally clear, the court had ruled that was it, you know, Losing candidate, uh, Vice President Gore, um, conceded. So whoever loses will concede. This is what we do as Americans. So, you know, this is what we do. And this is what we expect. And that's the name of the game. When you get in the game, you know that you may lose someday. You may lose in presidential election or U.S. Senate race or state legislature, and you lose, you lose. That's it. So look, any, any, anything to the contrary is just not right. I mean, no, this is what is great about this country. Um, we have carried this out as Theodore White, the excerpt I read says, you know, we've done it longer than anybody else has and we've done it successfully and we do it every four years. And I'll tell you, we're gonna do it this year. Uh, Jim Province from the Toledo Blade is back. Uh, Jim, please ask hey, your question. Hi, can you hear me now? You're good. You sound good. Yep. Great. Um, I was just trying to get at the practical um, aspect of the uh, prevalence study. Um, is there something that we can do today, uh, today that we were not able to make before we had this information? John, can you hear that? Yeah, uh, I, I did. You know, look, we... We wanted, we wanted to have information about active cases and get estimates about how many people have potentially had the virus. And, um, you know, when we had the conversation with the doctor, uh, she, she indicated that, you know, it's hard to make a hard and firm estimate. I, I, I in looking at the math and having conversations with people who've looked at the data, I believe that one could conclude that hundreds of thousands of people have had the virus, that, that you could you'd look at that information and reasonably conclude that five to 600,000 people maybe have had the virus. Again, not hard and fast. This, this information will be out there. Other people will be able to look at it and come to their own conclusions. But I think the big thing that we know is that, look, the goal ultimately is to get to herd immunity and that we're gonna need a vaccine to do that. If there's one takeaway that I had from that information is that we've got a long way to go, that we've gotta get a vaccine uh, and that the, the combination of the two uh, are the way that we get there. And, and I don't know if Dr. Norris Turner is uh, on, if she could, she wants to offer any, any uh, conclusions to that beyond what I've said, um, well, I think maybe we could have her join. Yes, I'm still here and I can jump in. 
quickly, um, which is to say that most of the testing and prevalence information that we have in Ohio, but also across the country comes from people seeking testing because they're unwell or they've had a documented exposure. So um, this was the first study that really tried to get an estimate much more broadly around the number of people who, who had either had infection in that period in July or, or who'd been exposed without depending on um, their access to testing or their, their desire to be tested um, or a requirement for them to be tested. So when that has been done in other settings, sometimes what happens is that you learn that a lot more people had had infection in the past than had been reflected through other data streams. Um, and so what this study did was to confirm that in fact the data that we are getting through other data streams, other surveillance efforts, other projects of the Ohio Department of Health and others pretty, you know, do give us a good sense of how many people have been have been exposed and how many people have been sick. There wasn't a huge number of people um, and in some other studies, particularly in New York in the beginning of the epidemic, some of the early seroprevalence studies suddenly suggested that lots more people had been sick than had been known about. And, and that's not been the case in Ohio. Um, there are more cases from our study. There are more cases in the state than are picked up in testing. That's not a surprise. That's a very standard finding across the country. Um, but it's not a huge difference. It's not an enormous um, disparity. And um, so we should keep on doing what we've been doing in terms of embracing public health efforts. Those things are working and the prevalence is, is staying low because of them. Next question is from Jim Adi at WHIO in Dayton. Governor, I have a question going back yep. to your original uh, statement at the very beginning of all this, and that is uh, about the debate the other night. Um, I know you've been part of a lot of debates. I don't remember you yelling over the top of your opponent or them yelling over the top of what you're trying to say. Would you support the Commission on Presidential Debates going to a mute button that would be controlled by the moderator so they could cut somebody off as soon as they start violating the rules and trying to shout down their opponent? Well, they've already said they're gonna look at this. Um, <clears throat> there's certainly been speculation that they might, might do that. I think they'll do whatever they think is necessary to, um, you know, have us focused uh, more on more on substance. I don't. I wouldn't have any objection to it. I'm not. I'm not a candidate, but I wouldn't have any objection to it. Uh, I will say, Jim, as you've watched some of the debates I've been in, and frankly, sometimes, uh, you know, in in the battle, you get overheated. But um, you know, that's that that does in fact happen. But um, you know, the White House is at stake. Uh, the leader of this country will be selected. Um, it's important that the American people be able to see the exchange of ideas uh, because there are differences, uh, fundamental differences between uh, two, these two candidates. Both, both love America, both love our country, but there's fundamental differences. And, and I would hope that the, the next debate, debates, actually there's a VP of debate and then there's more presidential, I believe, um, that they would focus on on those differences. Uh, I think it's legitimate for someone to say what they've done. I think it's legitimate for someone to criticize someone for what they've done or not done. I think those are all things in bounds. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a, uh, a robust, as I described it a moment ago, a robust uh, discussion, debate, um, hard fought uh, is what the American people expect but I think they expect it over, over the issues and be able to 
sit back and watch this for 90 minutes or however long it lasts. The, the debates of the debates of historically, um, you know, we went for many, many, many years without these formal debates. Uh, you know, but beginning in 1960, we we had had one, and then I think it picked up again. And I don't know whether it's 68 or 72, but at some point picked up again. Then we now it's a, something we do every every four years. Um, so anything that will enhance that debate, I'm I'm for. Next question is from Andy Chow at Ohio Public Radio and Television. Hi, Governor. Hey, Andy. Governor, at the beginning of this, you spoke about denouncing white supremacy, the sanctity of the elections. You just answered Marty's question about you feel pretty confident about a peaceful transition of power. But how can the citizens of Ohio feel confident about all those things when President Trump undermines those things? and you refuse to speak out against him when he does undermine things like the sanctity of elections, like the peaceful transition of power, like not denouncing white supremacy. You don't speak out against him. I think I've been pretty clear today. Um, pretty clear message. What I believe is governor of the state of Ohio this will be a fair election. Uh, the votes will be counted. Nobody else will decide but the voters. However, this election comes out as well as all the other elections. Uh, that's who will win. Uh, any idea that the legislature will do anything, it's not going to happen. We, we have run fair elections in Ohio for a long, long time. There's no reason to think that this election will not be a fair one. And I think it's, so it's important on both sides. Um, let's not presuppose we're going to have a problem uh, when we have both parties who have a vested interest in a fair election. Uh, as John Houston pointed out, what we do in Ohio, and I suppose they do in most states, is down to the precinct level. We have both parties involved. Uh, it, it is a system. Sure, there could be a mistake. There can be mistakes made. We don't say it's perfect, but this this elect people should have confidence in Ohio that th their vote is going to get counted, and they have myriad ways of voting. Um, and so we have an obligation to make sure that happens. We have an obligation to make sure that um, people are right or left who believe in disturbance. Uh, don't believe in the rule of law, uh, who, who believe that violence should take over, uh, that that is dealt with. And we fully intend to do that in the state of Ohio. Um, you know, press conference after press conference, you know, I get asked about different comments made by the president, somebody else, you know, I'm not here to answer every single thing the president says. I think I've been very clear throughout my career uh, and throughout my time as governor, what I believe in and what we will do. It's not just what I believe in. It's not just what I say. It's what we do. And so, you know, we'll continue to speak out against violence. We'll continue to speak out uh, against uh you know, anything that disrupts the fairness uh, of an election, 
or continue to speak out against hatred and violence. And that's, that's what my job is. My job is not every single day to critique the president of the United States, nor to critique Joe Biden. And, you know, if there's another president in there in January, I'll have the same attitude. Look, I got to, you know, if Joe Biden is president or Donald Trump is president and takes the oath of office, whichever one on January 20th, I am not going to spend my days, you know, debating or critiquing what that president says. What I am going to do is, is do the best I can for the people of the state of Ohio. And Governor, I'm, and what, governor what I'm do. saying is, as, as governor of Ohio, you're prepared to stand against either President Trump or Joe Biden if they were to do something that goes against the Constitution. That's what you're telling the people of Ohio well, absolutely. right Absolutely. Well, I, I thought, yeah, Eddie, I thought that, I think that was a question. Absolutely. I think people should know me. I think they should know what, you know, like people can disagree about the, what we've done in the virus. They can disagree about all kinds of things. They can think my position on this is wrong. My position is that is wrong. But no governor of the state is going to stand up here and say that, you know, or have any intention, I would hope, that we're not going to follow the Constitution. The will of the people will prevail in the state of Ohio. The electoral votes in Ohio will be cast for whoever gets the most votes in the state of Ohio. I will guarantee you that. Thank you. Next question is from Max Philby at the Columbus Dispatch. Afternoon, Governor. Hey, Max. Um, so experts are warning that child immunizations are way, way, way down this year because of COVID-19 and warning that that could lead to some outbreaks of measles and whooping cough and other things. And so my question is today, does Ohio have the resources to track and contain those kinds of outbreaks on top of COVID-19? Well, I, thank you for the question. We're very concerned about this. Uh, we're very concerned about this. There is this anti-vaccination movement uh, that I think is very misguided. Um, we also add on top of that um, that people, because of the COVID, um, have sometimes been reluctant to go to their doctors. So we are looking at advertising about this, messaging about this. Uh, I will continue to say that, you know, go to your doctor, take your kids, get their shots. Um, so this is, a, this is a real issue. It's something we're very concerned about uh, and that we're gonna continue to, to work on. And it's, um, you know, it's, just, it's just very, very, very important that people do that. Next question is from Jack Windsor at WMFD in Mansfield. Hey, Jack. Hi, Governor. Uh, this question is, is for you and uh, actually first for Dr. Abby. Uh, and it's how do you account for people who were infected well before July? Because you mentioned that immunity can last three months or easily uh, be easily detected during three months. Uh, Pike County Department of Health says they had the virus there in November 2019, a time that would account for close indoor contact during Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's celebrations. And we were told it was more contagious early on. So there are at least three three month intervals since that time period during which people could have contracted the virus and the immunity could have gone from strong prevalence, easily detectable, uh, like you said, to some sort of immunity that isn't detectable now. So how do you account uh, for those people who were affected, uh, infected previously and do those topics get covered in the report? And then governor, are you now saying that we are in for masking, distancing and quarantining for years? No, 
I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, look, I, I think the faster vaccine can get out, uh, the better it is. Uh, we have one couple things going for us. Uh, I think that the, and this is the reason why people don't want to get it and should not want to get it. Uh, and that is doctors have already gotten a lot better at keeping people alive and bringing them back to good health. Uh, that will only continue. I think we can expect that to continue. The ability to deal with this once you have COVID will get better every, every week. Uh, and at the, at the same, at the same time, um, you know, the sooner we can get the vaccines out and the sooner people take them, um, you know, again, been some concern about whether people will take the vaccines, but the sooner we can get to that point, I don't know what that point is, but that's what we have to do. Um, and that's, that's what we should do, but I can't put a date on it. Uh, Jack, there's no one that I don't think any, any specialist can put a date on when we will be able to achieve what we need to be able to achieve. Um, so I'm going to let the doctor answer the, uh, uh, the other question on, on, on the study. Yes, great. Thank you for that question. So um, what I was saying about that three-month period is um, just something for everyone to keep in mind. If they get a positive antibody test, um, they, they're screened for COVID. For example, they, they give blood and the Ohio Red Cross tells them that they're antibody positive. That means that they most likely had infection sometime in the last three months. It doesn't mean that they had it exactly three months ago. It means that they had it sometime in the last three months. Um, and because those are the same assays that we used for this study that was conducted in July, it can only give us a, a more confident answer related to the number of people that were exposed to coronavirus or not exposed, meaning they, they were at risk of disease, but who actually had infection um, in, in, in the three month period before that. Um, how it relates to earlier in the spring, that this, this study I described today doesn't tell us about those numbers because the antibody assays um, don't capture infections that occurred in that time period. And I'll also say um, this is just one of the surprises about COVID-19. So, so folks will know that COVID-19 is caused by SARS-CoV-2. And at first, we were making a lot of inferences about things like antibody levels from our experience with SARS-CoV-1, the virus that caused the original SARS epidemic. And it, for that infection, people have antibodies that persist for many months and even years. And so the assumption was these antibody tests would give a longer um, picture, a longer timeline of how many people had been infected. And it's only been in the last few months that there's more data showing that, in fact, the, the time span is a bit shorter. Um, to answer your specific question about cases, uh, for example, in 2019, I'm not aware of any plausible data that shows that there was circulating virus in Ohio um, in, in 2019. Or, or, um, and, and if there were cases in very early 2020, those um, only were, as, as folks probably know, only determined after the fact. Um, because of course, our first documented infections were, were on March 9th of this year.